Well, good morning, church. It is, um, is football season. Is anybody excited about that? No? <laughs> yeah. That's fine. That's cool. We're going to talk a lot about football this morning, but we're not going to talk a lot about football this morning. I have a theory. It's a controversial theory, so um, if you agree with me, then I'm excited about that. If you don't agree with me, I'm still right. So here's my theory. My theory is this, that nobody actually cares about sports teams. Nobody actually cares about anything that they fight about. You know, people fight about, well, this player is, is a great player, or that player is a great player, or they had a really great game, and, you know, my player is better than your player, and all that kind of things. I don't think anybody actually cares about sports teams. I think they care about the colors. I think they care about what color the uniform is. And that's it. I put this hypothesis to the test in two ways. The first is that I, I'm not a sports person. I don't care so much about sports. They never meant much to me. But I realized growing up as like a man with children that if you want to talk to other dudes, you have to have like some kind of something to start with. And there's a thing where like, what's your team, man? I'm like, I don't know. I don't care. And so I decided, okay, if I have to pick a team, I'm going to count. I'm going to go by what matters. I'm going to pick the team with the best colors. And so, and the year that I did this, I went with, this isn't clicking. I went with the Seattle Seahawks because they had this nice, like, navy blue uniform, and then they had this bright, like, chartreuse yellow on there. And the way it was, like, I just, I liked the colors. It stood out. There wasn't any other team that was using that neon-type color. I thought it was really good. I'll just say, for the record, they went to the Super Bowl that year, but that's neither here nor there. Here's the other way that I tested this hypothesis. I want you, if you have a favorite team, if you have a favorite team, I know you do. You have a favorite team. All right, here's the thing. Take everybody on your roster of your favorite team and take everybody on the roster of your rival team and swap them, put them in different colors. I guarantee you, you will root for the same colors regardless of what person is wearing the uniform. You're saying no. You're saying no. What's the, what's the rival team to the Panthers? Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay. All right. So if everybody on the Tampa Bay lineup was wearing a Panthers uniform, playing under the Panthers banner, getting a paycheck from the, the Carolina Panthers, you wouldn't root for them? I don't believe you. <clears throat> but, this is, but this is a thing. The thing that's interesting to me is that it's good for the organization. It's good for the NFL for there to be rivalries. Because the NFL doesn't care whether you're a Carolina Panthers fan or whether you're a Tampa Bay Buccaneers fan. They get money whether you buy their jersey or the other jersey, right? So the organization as a whole is fine encouraging rivalries because they make more money either way. It doesn't matter which stadium you go to, you bought a ticket. And it's got that logo on the ticket, right? I don't know. I'm, this is hypothesis. I'm way, I'm, way out of my, I'm way out of my comfort zone with this. So let's get to the Bible. We can talk about that a little bit more comfortable. What I want you to understand is that the Bible isn't like that. Jesus doesn't play that game. Jesus doesn't set up teams and have different rivalries because it, it builds up his organization that actually rips apart his organization. And that's one of the things that these churches were getting distracted by. Remember when a series called Shiny Things one of the shiny things is the colors that you put on. One of the shiny things is the team that you say you belong to. And the way that that gets expressed is by your teachers. 
So we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Would you pray with me before we open God's Word? Jesus, thanks so much for this morning. Thank you for how you care about us. Thank you for how you bring us together and unite us together under your banner. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace and your kindness that won us to you. We thank you that Jesus is finishing the work that he started in us. And so, Lord, this morning as we gather together around your word, Lord, we pray that you would speak clearly. Lord, that the, the things that might distract us would kind of fade away. And that, Lord, all of the things that we do this morning would bring honor and glory to your name. And it's in that name that we ask. Amen. So if you turn with me, we're, we're reading now in 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. And if you've got a story Bible, it's on page 790. If you'd like a Bible to follow along with. Anybody want a Bible to follow along with? It's on page 790 in these Bibles. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to start reading in verse 10. So if you turn there, tap there, however you need to navigate. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. It writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say you were baptized in my name. I, I did also baptize the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So in these first, these first verses, remember, he opened up the letter and says, I give thanks to you. I give thanks to God for you and everything that's going on because Jesus is finishing the work in you that he started. I have confidence that Jesus is going to finish what he started in you. But he says, look, there's a rumor going around. There's word getting back to me that you guys have divided yourselves. And you're saying, well, I, one would say, I follow Paul. And the other one would say, I follow Apollos. And he was a really smart Greek guy. He apparently was really, really uh, eloquent and thought really well. And he was a really good teacher. Some would say, I follow Cephas. Well, Cephas is the Hebrew name for Peter. We know who Peter was. Peter was an apostle. And, and I think we also know who, who Jesus is. So they're saying, I follow this guy and not those guys. And I follow this guy and not that guy. Well, I follow Jesus, so I'm better than all of you guys. Like, I don't care. It's not a human thing. It's a, I'm following Jesus. And what's interesting is as they've divided themselves up and as they've kind of taken on the uniform of a certain teacher that they prefer, they've excluded all the others. And it, it, what's, what's so fascinating to me is that it's gotten so bad that Jesus is just one of the options. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. I follow Apollos. I follow Jesus. Like, he's just another one of the options. They've missed it, right? They're idolizing their preferred leaders to the demonization of other godly leaders. They're saying, like, I follow Paul, and, and Peter's just got it all wrong. 
Or Apollos, is just, he just talks pretty. Like, I'm following Paul. He's got it together. He speaks the word with power. No, we don't, we don't have any of this in the church today. No, none of us have a preferred leader that, that we like to listen to. There's nobody who's, whose sermons we prefer to listen to or anything like that. And there's nobody who we say, well, I don't like that guy. I don't listen to him. He, he talks too long or he's too confusing. I, mean, I don't get that. <clears throat> but these, the, the Corinthians here were idolizing their preferred leaders to the demonization of other godly leaders. And Paul makes the point in verse 13, don't miss this. In verse 13, he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He says, the church is Christ's. We're all on the same team. We all follow Jesus. We're all trying to get to the same thing. And, and, and Peter teaches it in one way, and Paul teaches it in another way, and Apollos teaches it together. But they're all, we're all trying to point us back to Christ. Is Christ divided? Imagine like a fishing net. This is, this is a little bit of a picture. This is like a fishing net that's got holes in it, and it's kind of ripping itself apart. And how effective is a fishing net going to be at its designed purpose if it's got holes in it and it's ripping itself apart? One, what's the purpose of a fishing net? To catch fish. And two, is it going to be able to do that if it's, if it's ripping itself off and, and rejecting no. I've, have you ever seen a, a net up close and seen how it's like one thread and it, this one gets wrapped around and around and around, but it's pulling against and the tension between the different strands is, is kind of what makes the net, right? They, they come and they intersect, but then each, each strand is its own thing. But one strand, one string by itself isn't going to catch any fish. It's too thick. If we want to catch a fish with one string, it's got to be really thin. It's got to, you know, got to cast it out with a super reel. If, if Pastor Tao was here, I, he could tell me how to fish. I don't know how to do it. <clears throat> but the, the idea, the picture is a net that's ripping itself apart. And, all, and they're saying, I, I follow this string or I follow this string. And there's places where they're different. And there's places where they overlap, but they all are pointing to the same thing. And so he's saying, I urge you, do not be divided. Agree together. Pull the net back together. Y'all are all on the same team. And it's all built on the foundation of Christ, which is what we started in the back. The heartbeat of our faith is that Christ, that Jesus, is finishing what he started. Right? The church is Christ's. It's not Paul's. It's not, it's not anybody, any individual teachers. It belongs to Jesus. And then Paul goes off, and I love Paul. Like, if you think that the Bible is kind of stale and things like that, like he goes off on this little bit of digression. He says, were you baptized in Paul's name? I only baptized a couple of you. Wait, I, I might have baptized another one. I don't, I don't remember. But I didn't come to baptize anybody. I came to preach the gospel. Right? I wasn't trying to start a cult. I wasn't trying to gather people around Paul and tell everybody how great Paul was so that Paul could walk around and make a bunch of money and go on his preaching circuit. Like, that wasn't what it was about. It was always about Christ. I didn't come and baptize a bunch of people because that wasn't what my goal was. My goal was to preach the gospel. The gospel being the good news about Jesus. It's not the good news about Paul. I'm sure Paul's a great guy. But he didn't come to tell people how nice he was. He didn't come to, to get people to like him. He said, I have good news. I'm here to share it. And that's what it's about. And look at this, this last verse that we read together in verse 17. 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Listen, the power of the cross is not held in our ability to persuade others to pick it up. That's uh, kind of a, a churchy sentence. The power of the cross is not weighed in our ability to persuade others to pick it up. You've got, you've got friends, you've got family members, you've got people that you're working with that you're like, I just want them to follow Jesus. Like, Jesus is the answer. I can see how they need to take this step of faith, and, and I just don't know that I can do it. Like, what do I do? Like, I don't have all the answers. They've got really, really good questions about, like, the Bible and how it fits together and, and what it, what's got in it. Like, I don't know what to do. How am I supposed to do this? And that preacher guy, Michael, keeps telling me that it's my responsibility to to reach my community. And he keeps telling me that it's my responsibility, that God wants to work through me to accomplish work in other people, that God uses normal people's hands to do divine work, but I'm just a normal person. Listen, the power of the cross is not in our ability to persuade other people to pick it up. He's saying, I didn't come and preach it in such a way that was so persuasive that y'all got on board. He said, I came and I preached the good news. And it was Christ who compelled you to, to, to pick it up, to buy in. So listen, Grace Church, it's not in your ability to persuade people. We, we want to be persuasive in our lives. The way that we live is going to be persuasive to people. But it's, your responsibility isn't to persuade people. Your responsibility is to point people to Jesus. What about what the Bible says about them homosexuals? Well, what does Jesus say? How did Jesus treat people that were caught in sexual sin? Well, what does the Bible say about drinking? Well, tell me, where did Jesus hang out? Well, what does the Bible say about blah, 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 blah? I don't like the Bible. The Bible is just a bunch of mumbo jumbo. That's fine. Do you realize that there is historical evidence that points to the fact that one man died, was crucified, and was dead and buried for three days and came back to life and walked around and showed everybody, hey, I'm not dead. You killed me, and I'm not dead. And he spent 40 days doing it as historical fact. Like, regardless of whether you accept or reject the Bible, you've got history to deal with. And if a man comes back to, from the dead and says, I am the Son of God, believe in me, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, you have to deal with that at some level if you're going to be a responsible, thinking human being. The power of the cross is not in our ability to persuade people. The power of the cross is Jesus. So I urge you, don't be divided among yourselves. Don't fight over which uniform you've got on, which colors you like better. You're all on the same team. Let's continue reading. <clears throat> Verse 18. I mean, I'm going to read verse 17 again because they're connected. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So, God's wisdom, God's wisdom runs contrary to human invention. We like to think that we're smart. We like to think that we can reason through things. And, and our reason, our intelligence, is a gift from God. And it's something that he is redeeming. It's something that he wants to work through. But we can't use that by itself to get to God. Just He says, for since in the wisdom of God, in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. So in God's wisdom... Humanity could not come to know him in a meaningful way just by themselves. But instead, in God's wisdom, God has to step in and explain what's happening so that we might come to meet God. Okay, that's really, really heady. Um, I'm trying to think. So we have this thing, or I hear this thing in, in the culture a lot where people say, God won't give you more than you can handle. Like, he's just, he's not going to give you more than you can handle. You just keep on pressing on. Just press on, and Jesus is going to be there. He's going to keep you. He won't give you more than you can handle. You can handle this, girlfriend. Listen, it's a lie. What God does is he gives you way more than you can handle so that you turn around and go, God, what am I supposed to do with this? And he says, trust me. In the wisdom of God, he did not give you, he will not give you, in the, wisdom, in the wisdom of God, he gives you more than you can handle so that you have to turn around and rely on him. Whereas in our wisdom, we, we would say, well, I can handle this. I can get through this. I can figure this out. I can, I can manipulate the situation and I can negotiate the circumstances and I can get people to do what I want them to do and I can pull all the strings and I can make it happen. And God says, that's foolishness. In my wisdom, I made it so that you had to turn to me. If I let you figure it out by yourself, you would think that you have no need for me. And you have every need for me. You need me. And if I let you believe that you don't need me, then you're going to die. And I love you too much to let you die. So I've taken what you think is right and what you think is, is wise and said, this foolishness, you need to turn to me because I have a wisdom that doesn't make sense to you. Because, hey... Captain Obvious here, he's God. His perspective on your life, his perspective on the world is a little bit different than yours. I don't know about you, but I've only got two eyes and ears. I've got a nose, and that's about all that I can take in. But God is infinite. He's not surprised by anything. <laughs> he holds the whole world in his hands. And if he knows it all, and he's doing something, and you're saying, God, I don't get what you're doing, and he looked down at you and said, well, do you trust me? I kind of got this under control. 
and he, he talks about Jews and Greeks, and if, I hope that's not confusing to you, but for the longest time, there were two categories of people in the Bible. There were Jews, who were the chosen people of God, and then there were Greeks, which is everybody who wasn't a Jew. And so God did some special things with Jews, and he, was the whole story of Israel, and, and we get into that pretty regularly around here. And so their thing is signs. Like if you come and you say, I'm a messenger from God, the question that they ask you is prove it. Show me a sign. And Greeks, which are people that aren't from that background, if you say, I'm a messenger from God, they say, explain it. And I, I know, I trust that you, are, you have enough people in your life that you have both of these people who think this way. There are people who, when you say, well, this is a thing from God, you, they say, prove it. Show me the sign. And there are people who you say, well, this is a thing from God. They say, explain it to me, because if I can't understand it, I cannot believe it. So what does he say about people from those mindsets? For, in verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, God can redeem any of them. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So the cross is our banner. We lift our banner high. It's the name of Jesus. It's the cross of Christ. If you want to know what we're defined by, we're defined by the cross. But here's, here's my concern. My concern is that the cross is a little bit sanitized in our culture. That when, when we say cross, like we think of church buildings, we think of necklaces, we think of tattoos, you know, we think of t-shirts. The crosses are everywhere in our culture. We forget that the cross is a penalty of judgment for criminals. And that when people this close to Jesus, when the Corinthians were saying the cross of, of Jesus, what they were saying was the death penalty for somebody who was a criminal. And so when we talk about the logo that's on our jersey, we're talking about a criminal dying. And, and so I'm like, okay, well, you know, I was thinking, well, nobody would pick a, 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 uh, a mascot of, of a criminal dying, and I was wrong. Like, <laughs> there's blue devils, there's, there's raiders, uh, there's vikings, there's buccaneers. Like, these are kind of some, some unsavory mascots that we're kind of comfortable with. They've been sanitized a little bit, and we're okay with our team name being there. And so I thought, well, if, if the cross, if the cross is our mascot, if the cross is our logo, if it's our banner for the team, and, and we have disconnected ourselves from what that means, like what is, what's, what's, what's something that is as low as the cross is to us? And the only image I kept coming back to was a roadkill armadillo. Like, you don't see any NFL teams running out on the field like, we're the roadkill armadillos. Like, that is the epitome of weakness. This is a cake, by the way. So I don't know that any of y'all would eat that, but I'm just saying. <laughs> it's a cake. I thought it was fascinating. It's, it's gross. One, armadillos are kind of gross in and of themselves, but when they get smooshed, like, there's a lot more grossness that's involved. And when we say the cross is our banner, it's weakness. What, what deity, what God, what savior of the world allows himself to die 
Not a noble death, but the death of a convicted criminal. I want you to feel the tension. Logically, it don't make no sense. Right? But the wisdom of God, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. When he points us back to the cross, he's saying, you thought that you could earn your way to me, and you couldn't. And you thought that I would come down and be strong. You thought that I would come down and be a king. And that's true, but phase one is weakness. Phase one is a manger and dirt and grime and poverty. We forget that Jesus was born into poverty. We forget that the disciples were, 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 were blue-collar workers. They didn't have an education. And so there's an irony that these people are lifting up Peter... Who's a fisherman? He wasn't a real smart guy. It's not even, when we look back at history, it's not even clear that he could write very well. But God uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise. So we, here's, here's the point, we admire novel leaders, but God works through his humbled servant. We admire novel leaders, the people that God uses in our lives. We should have some affinity for. Your teachers, the people that, that have taught you new things, the people that have pointed you to Jesus and you have grown under their teaching, like, yes, you should have some admiration of them. But that shiny thing of that person who God has used in your life to explain things, don't idolize that person and demonize every other teacher who explains it in a different way. We admire novel leaders. This is really hard for me to say. <laughs> but we admire novel leaders, but God works through his humbled servant. He points us back to Jesus, humbled, humiliated, as far as the world could see, defeated, until he comes back in his resurrection. Our banner is the cross. And just to drive the point home, we've, we've gone through the meat. I just want to drive this point home because he does it here. If you read with me, in verse 26. <clears throat> For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus and became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He, he, makes, he makes the same point. He's like, hey, if you think, you think that God is doing something, you think you're so smart, like, do you realize where you came from? You didn't come from a good family. You, not many of you were born into wealth. Not many of you were born with the reasoning ability that you proclaim to have. Like, you learned that stuff. You earned that stuff. Or it was given to you by somebody else. So if you want to get on your high horse and talk about your team colors, like, do you realize that somebody gave you the shirt off their back to begin with? That we stand on the shoulders of other people. That we inherit our faith from lowly men. And, and 
this verse here, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, is quoting Jeremiah chapter 9, which we, which we read earlier. And anytime I write to college students, um, anytime I'm writing or, or giving a life verse to somebody who's going into a transition, it's Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. If I ever write anything to you, I guarantee it'll show up at some point. Let not the wise boast in their wisdom or the rich in their wealth. But the person who boasts, let him boast in this, that he knows the Lord and he knows the goodness of his character. That's the foundation of the Bible. It's the foundation of the cross. It's the foundation of our faith. It's the foundation of my faith. The day is going to come where you're going to question. It's, it's going to happen. You're going to have doubts. You're going to have confusion. And I, I'm telling you that because that has been my experience. There are times when I go and I'm like, this just doesn't make sense to me. Like, I thought God was doing this other thing, and now I'm, I'm thinking about it, and I'm like, that doesn't actually make much sense. And there have been times, even in the last couple of years, where I've said, I don't know that I believe this. But what God continually brings me back to is the work that he's accomplished in Jesus. The grace that he showed me to, one, let me understand it, and two, the faith to believe it. Because it's foolishness to the world. And it's a stumbling block to people who think they can earn their own righteousness. I want to read for you something, and then we'll ask a couple of questions. This is a song um, by one of my favorite philosophers. And I feel like he lays this out really clearly. So I'll read this poem and we'll close with a couple of, of questions. All you great men of power, you who boast of your feats, politicians and entrepreneurs, can you safeguard your breath in the night while you sleep and keep your heart beating steady and sure? As you lie in your bed, does the thought haunt your head that you're really rather small? If there's one thing I know in this life, we are beggars all. All you champions of science and rulers of men, can you summon the sun from its sleep? And does the earth seek your counsel on how fast to spin? Can you shut up the gates of the deep? And don't you know that all things hang as if by a string over the darkness? poised to fall. If there's one thing I know in this life, we are beggars all. And all you big shots that swagger and stride with conceit, did you devise how your frame would be formed? If you'd be raised in a palace or live out on the streets, did you choose the place or the hour that you'd be born? Tell me, what can you claim not a thing, not your name. Tell me if you can recall just one thing that's not a gift in this life. And can you hear what's been said? Can you see now that everything is grace after all? If there's one thing I know in this life, we are beggars all. So whose color are you wearing? And whose colors make us bristle? There's popular teachers, there's local teachers, um, 
and there's an affinity that we feel for people who have taught us. And there's, the, there's good parts of that. But if you put on your jersey and start spitting on other godly teachers, then you've missed the point. And there's false teachers, people that would not point us to Jesus. And that's a problem. But for those godly men who are proclaiming the word of God and pointing people to Jesus and leading people to Jesus, can we praise God that he's using broken and weary beggars to point to the glory of his full table? And what more could we learn with a posture of humility? It says, I, I, don't, I didn't pick the time I was going to be born. I didn't pick my parents. I didn't pick my family, my siblings. Like, I wouldn't have for sure. But I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> I don't keep my heart beating. Like, I can understand the medical procedures that make it happen, but I don't have any power to keep my heart to beat. Like even if I understand the process of how other people could help my heart to beat, I can't do it myself. There's nobody who's rubbing the pads together yelling clear and zapping their heart. Their own heart is always somebody else. Can't keep my heart beating. Can't make sure that there's going to be breath in the atmosphere for me to breathe in the next time I want to inhale. There's grace. So what more could we learn if we had that posture of humility? And how much more could we grow if we had a heart of gratitude, thankful for the kindness that God has showed to us? Thankful that he is the way and he loved us enough to tell us the truth. That he could give us life. again for listening. We hope you've been challenged, encouraged, and helped by God and His Word. If you want more information about Grace Church of Ocala or would like to get in contact with us, please visit our home on the internet, ocalagrace.org. And if we haven't met yet, we hope to talk with you soon.